When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. They supported the show for over two years now, and I've used HubSpot for the majority of my professional career. One of the most useful tools that is included in the HubSpot suite of products is Sales Hub. Sales Hub is an all-in-one platform built with the tools and insights that you need to communicate on a personal level with every lead, every prospect, every customer. It doesn't matter what kind of business you're building, Sales Hub makes it easier to close more deals and drive more revenue. If you're looking for a better way to acquire customers, and we all are because that is the lifeblood of our business, if you're looking to make smart, data-driven decisions, increase visibility, productivity, predictability of your revenue, you got to look at Sales Hub. It can organize and sort deals in your pipeline. It creates reminder tasks for your most important deadlines. It manages leads. It automates outreach. It tracks and closes deals all in one place. And on top of that, it's free to get started and it grows with your business as it scales. There's 1,300 integrations and a ton of valuable add-ons. Customize it exactly to your needs. With Sales Hub, closing deals is no longer a big deal. Go to HubSpot.com slash sales and try it for free. Dr. Lane Norton, I'm super happy that you're here. I'm very excited. I've, I've watched a ton of your uh, content going into this, and I've, I've read some of your work as well followed some of the things you put out on Twitter. Um, and I love how much you speak your mind in this space. I think it's important. Now, let's kick this off with an interesting question. Why is there so much pseudoscience in health, wellness, nutrition? Why does it feel like everybody, even before we kick this off, we were speaking about people adhere to their ideologies of health and wellness, but it seems like there's so much fake and so much misrepresented in this space. Why is that? So it's a great question, and I actually do feel like I have a pretty good answer for that. So I used to have this kind of um, epiphany when I would go out. I hated telling people I had, like if I was just meeting people, I kind of didn't like telling them what I did, like having a PhD in nutrition. Like if I, if I go out to a, a party or, or meet new people or whatever, and I say, yeah, I'm a theoretical physicist and I study string theory. You know, I might get questions about the universe and stars and some fun stuff. But I think, you know, most people are probably not going to try and have a debate with me about string theory, right? Um, or if I was a professor of mathematics, you know, most people aren't going to like question my theorems. But being a PhD in nutritional sciences, everyone eats. So everyone has formed some opinion of nutrition because whether it's right or wrong, they have associated something they've eaten with some outcome. And uh, it is really interesting too. People, um, they'll get different ailments. They'll have something happen. Uh, they'll get a headache, whatever. 
And it seems invariably they associate it, they try to associate back to something they ate. I don't know where this obsession comes from. I wish nutrition had that much power uh, because I could probably make more money, to be quite frank, if nutrition really had that much power. Um, but I, I think a lot of it boils down to everyone has a personal experience with nutrition. And so that personal experience, I was talking to, this about, to, to a friend about this the other day, that personal experience is by far more powerful than any study I can show them. They're, they're even, and the problem is people don't understand the concept of bias and confounding variables. So, for example, I'll hear this all the time. Well, I cut out carbs and I, I lost weight. All my blood markers improved. You know, so it was the carbs that were, were causing me problems. Well, you, one, you probably didn't do that in isolation. People don't typically do behaviors in isolation. They cut out carbs. They tend to eat less processed food. They're eating less calories overall. They probably start exercising because they're getting serious about their health. And they get all these approved, but they tie it to the fact that, well, I was eating too many carbs, so it was insulin and sugar that made me, made me fat and unhealthy. But that's why we have human randomized control trials, because the important thing, and I think this is so important for people to understand why randomized control trials are so, are the gold standard of research. Because if we, like, take, let's say we take 100 people, and we say, okay, some of you are going to do the high-carb low-fat diet, some of you are going to do the low-carb, high-fat diet. You, you can choose which group you want to go into. Well, the problem is there could be certain characteristics about people that select each diet that predispose them to better adherence or uh, more activity or all kinds of confounding variables, right? But if we take a group of 100 people and we randomly assign them, what you can... What it gives you confidence in is that any of those kind of confounding variables are going to be randomly distributed across the groups. And so if you see differences or don't see differences, you can be relatively confident that what you're looking at is a treatment effect. Hopefully that makes sense. So, it does. so this is why human randomized control trials are considered the gold standard of research. So again, going back to somebody who said, well, I cut out carbs and I lost weight. I feel amazing. Okay. Well, here's 20 randomized control trials where they controlled people's food intake, equated calories, equated protein, and did the gamut of carbs and fats in terms of all the way from very low carb to very high carb, low fat. And we see that there's really no difference in fat loss if you equate and control for those variables. But the problem is because that person had that experience... It almost doesn't matter how much research you show them. And this is what we call confirmation bias, where people have an experience and then they will retroactively look for reasons why whatever they did is the best thing to do. Because people like feeling righteous. They like to feel, and honestly, I think I do think it's like, oh, I want to help other people with this thing. And I'll give an example where I fell into that. So I do my kind of approach to eating is what I call flexible dieting. So I have a certain amount of calories, protein, carbs, and fats that I'm, I'm trying to hit, you know, every day. And, you know, for the most part, I eat foods that I enjoy eating to fill those out. Now, I eat plenty of fruits and vegetables, but I still, you know, I have ice cream every day. Um, I love, like, popcorn, so I'll have popcorn. Like, I have foods that you would not consider, you know, normal diet, diet foods. 
uh, but I'm extremely consistent. I'm brutally consistent and it works. And in fact, um, when I was getting into bodybuilding 20 years ago, I kept trying to eat clean, you know, which was basically like your traditional diet foods. And I found that I would eat clean for a period of time and then I would invariably break and I would, you know, go off the deep end and binge eat and, you know, have a bunch of crap. And I was having trouble making progress. And so I was like, I said, you know, I wonder if I just allowed myself to have this moderation, but, you know, didn't overeat calories and whatnot, you know, how, and once I started doing that, I mean, I became brutally adherent. It felt relatively easy, you know, and I've just been able to be consistent that way. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is the solution for everyone. And then as I got into coaching and coached more people, I found that, yeah, it was a great option for a lot of people. But some people, the idea of tracking or hitting certain numbers, it's just very stressful for them. And they'd rather just not eat carbs or they'd rather time restrict their eating, whatever it is. But fortunately, having that scientific background, I was able to identify, oh, I'm being confirmation biased right now. The data doesn't really support what I'm actually saying. It's just a tool in a tool belt. But I think people just become very dogmatic about whatever approach they felt feel like they got results with. You know, I, I, you know, when it comes to, I use financial examples a lot. It would be like, you know, somebody who got rich in tech stock during the tech boom, be like, you got to invest in tech stock. That's the stock that always works, you know? And it's like, well, we know what tends to work for finances overall. Like you want to, for the most part, be really consistent with your investing, start early, um, consistently put away like at least 15% of what you're taking home and you spread it across to various different types of mutual funds so that you're diversified in risk. And hey, if you become wealthy enough, then you can kind of mess around with single stocks um, once, you have, once you have some money that you can afford to lose, essentially, or not touch. Um, but that's not that sexy. And so, you know, you get kind of similar types of messaging. So I think that that's where, you know, people just can become dogmatic about anything based on their own personal experience. Well, it seems like when you look at all the different types of diets, so you look at the the high carb, low fat, you look at the low carb, higher fat, and like more traditional keto, you look at intermittent fasting, these are almost just uh, psychological tricks to to promote a certain diet that you can adhere to for a long term. Is that is that more or less? Yeah, I mean, so there was actually a really a really telling study. Um, it was it was called um, it was a meta analysis. So a meta analysis, just so people understand is not a study in and of itself. You're not recruiting subjects or anything like that. What you're doing is you are scouring the entire database of research and you're looking for studies that fit your, what you call inclusion criteria, right? So basically these, this particular meta-analysis, I forget the exact inclusion criteria, but I think they were looking for, uh, you know, studies looking at weight loss diets in humans, that tracked, I think, weight loss over three months, six months, and two years. Um, and there were some other inclusion criteria as well. And basically, they're including any studies that fall into this. And then, and they have certain exclusion criteria. Like, I, you know, again, I'm not certain, I'm not saying that these were the exact exclusion criteria. But like, for example, some studies will say, you know, we didn't take people with heart disease. We didn't take people with type 2 diabetes, you know, like that sort of thing, right? I'm not saying that was the case for this study. I'm just saying you can set whatever criteria you want. So you include all the studies that fit that criteria. And what you try to do then 
is basically combine all those data points to try to come up with a consensus of what the research says for your particular research question. So it's a very powerful tool because a lot of times you can take you know, individual nutrition studies and randomized control trials. It is very, very difficult to get randomized control trials that last longer than a few months with any kind of reasonable amount of control. So for example, um, if you want a really highly controlled study, you have to pay people. Like you, like you can't just have that much control over people's lifestyle. People be like, okay, sure, yeah, I'll do that. You know, I'll go sit in food jail for, for six months, you know? So, I mean, there was a, a study recently where, um, uh, I can't remember the exact study, but basically they paid people like $700 seven to $800 uh, for like over a hundred thousand participants or, or no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Seven to $800 per participant. And the total ended up being like several hundred thousand dollars they had to pay out. And all they were doing was monitoring people over like a six month period. Like they weren't even like forcing them to eat the meals that they wanted. They just told them what to do and like had them come in and take measurements and stuff. So the point being, it's really, really hard to get long, multi-year randomized control trials with a high degree of control. And so the ones that are, do have a high degree of control end up being very few subjects, right? So the power of a meta-analysis is you've combined all these, you can take, you know, a study may only have 20 or 30 people, but once you do a meta-analysis, you may have thousands of data points. So it really can be a powerful tool. Oh, I was going to say, you have to be careful for uh, searching for studies that also support what you're looking for, because I, I know that you can find studies on anything to support almost any conclusion. Right, right. And again, that's why meta-analyses are so powerful, because I always tell people, I don't care about single studies. I mean, I may get like excited about how well a study was done or how tightly it was controlled or whatever, but I will very, very rarely make uh, strong statements about one study. I'll usually say, this study suggests this, Here's how it fits with the rest of the evidence. Well, we probably need more research, and I will say that almost every time, right? So that's why meta-analyses are so powerful, because it's not one study, it's multiple studies. Now, it's important to read, because you can do a bad meta-analysis as well, because there are meta-analyses with, like, two studies or three studies. Um, you know, especially if research is emerging, that's not necessarily a knock on the meta-analysis. If the studies don't fit the inclusion criteria, there may only be that many studies. Um, but again, in this one they were looking at 14 different like popular diets and how they, you know, their effects on weight loss over like six months, a year, two years. And what they found basically is in the long term, over two years, all of them were equally horrible at promoting, at facilitating long-term weight loss. There really wasn't much difference. But when they took people and stratified them from least adherent to most adherent, regardless of diet used, there was a linear effect on their results. So basically, the most adherent people got the best results, regardless of diet used. So what that says to me, especially based on another meta-analysis, kind of what I was talking about, uh, this one from 2017 by Kevin Hall, where they looked at um, low-carb versus low-fat diets, uh, when protein was equated and when calories were equated and when meals were provided to the participants, so actually a high degree of control, and they found that there was no difference between fat loss between these groups, really. Um, so taking all those things together, I look at that and say, well, the best diet is 
probably the one that you can stick to as an individual. And we look at adherence, adherence appears to be very individual because they even looked at, hey, did any of these diets tend to have better adherence than others? And the answer is no. Um, there doesn't really seem to be one diet that pops up as, as being better for adherence. But for individuals, you'll hear individuals say, man, I did time-restricted eating. It felt like I wasn't even dieting. You know, it was so easy for me. Or I did low-carb. It felt easy. I did plant-based. It felt easy. I did flexible dieting. It felt easy. So if you want to lose fat, um, you have to... You have to restrict in some way, but you should probably pick the form of restriction that feels the least restrictive for you because most people think about a diet just as a diet and they don't think about it as a lifestyle. And that's why the weight loss recidivism rates, which is basically relapsing to previous weights after weight loss are like 80, 90, even percent, even higher if you look out past five years. So what it really says is whatever diet that you're choosing to use to lose weight those habits and behaviors you build you better be able to maintain them because weight maintenance is actually more difficult than weight loss so on that point when you're talking about all these different types of diets is there any uh type of diet that is not just for fat loss but for muscle preservation and or cognitive performance that could be optimal or does it still follow those th that exact same trend I can't really speak to the cognitive because it's not really my area. What I will say is if you see people lose body fat um, following healthier diet practices, you do see, tend to see better cognition. I will say um, there appears to be a link between the gut and the brain. We don't fully understand it yet. So I will say eating sufficient amounts of fruits and vegetables uh, and enough dietary fiber is pretty much the best way to have a healthy gut microbiome. And that may be important if it ties into cognition, but I wouldn't say that there's strong direct links between the two yet, although I haven't looked really hard at it either. So it could, it could be there and I'm just not aware of it. Um, when it comes to muscle retention, really what you're looking at is getting enough protein in um, and then resistance training. If you do those two things, you're, you're, you're doing 90% of the, the work. There is some data that suggests that a ketogenic diet specifically may not be optimal for lean mass retention uh, compared to a diet that has sufficient carbohydrate. That is mechanistically, that's probably because carbohydrates release insulin. Insulin has a inhibitory effect on what we call proteolysis, which is basically uh, muscle protein breakdown, right? So that is probably why uh, and then we do see that in the randomized control trials too, especially uh, a randomized control trial by Kevin Hall, where they took people and put them on a ketogenic diet, compared it to eating like a sufficient amount of car or not a sufficient because there's no requirement for carbohydrates, but like a high carb, low fat diet. And they found that their urinary nitrogen excretion was higher and they had, they lost more lean mass over the course of the RCT. So uh, urinary nitrogen, basically uh, why that's important is because protein is the only nitrogen-containing macronutrient there is. The nitrogen component is what makes it unique. And so um, we can look at how much nitrogen appears in your urine. We can also look at how much you're taking in. 
and we can come up with like a pretty good idea of like whether or not you're in a positive or negative nitrogen balance. And if you're in a negative nitrogen balance, that's a pretty good indicator that you're probably losing lean tissue. So I, I'm not saying that you can't gain muscle on a ketogenic diet because I know people will misinterpret what I'm saying and, and make it black and white and go to extremes. You can absolutely gain muscle on a ketogenic diet. Um, but when they compare them straight up to diets equal in protein that are non-ketogenic, the non-ketogenic diets tend to do a little bit better. Again, it's not a massive difference in lean mass retention. So I, I wouldn't tell anybody, hey, like if you have success on a ketogenic diet, it's easy for you to adhere to. I'm not saying don't do it because you're just going to strip off a bunch of muscle. But is it the best thing for muscle retention? Not based on the, the, the data we have. I also think it's it's important to note that when you look at the individuals that are sort of preaching about one diet versus the other, I mean, you see this all the time. So you live in this world. A lot of them are not natural online. And <laughs> obviously that changes the, the whole game, right? If yeah. you can take any diet to a point and have some success with it. And I know that some of the guys that you debate with and you and some of the guys that post a lot of bullshit online about this, that, that's the, that diet, they totally negate to disclose or they just don't discuss that their whole body physiology changes to a degree once you're on this, that, or the other. Yeah, I mean, obviously, performance-enhancing drugs can make up for a lot of, you know, inadequacies in, in diet and training and whatnot. Um, and it's always like, you know, so people people will ask me things like, oh, um, it reminds me of a meme. Somebody uh, sent me this meme, and it was like, um, I took, uh, you know, I took statistics this year, um, and then they go into, like, p-values and stuff. Um, and then the per other person goes, oh, it seems like it, re it must have really helped you. And the person goes, uh, maybe. Because if you understand statistics, you understand that everything is just risk and probabilities, that there are no, there are no absolutes. Uh, and so, you know, these people will say, well, I did this and look, I got this. And like somebody yesterday asked me, oh, do you think um, something, they asked me something about my training. Do you think that that was the reason that you set this world record in a squat? And uh, for those who aren't familiar, 2015, I set um, a then world squat record, 668 pounds at 205 pound body weight class been broken a bunch of times since then. But they were asking something about my training and whether or not that particularly was one of the reasons I was able to do that. And my response was, maybe. <laughs> because I can't go back and clone myself and have myself do it a different way and then compare it, right? I'm basically my own case study. And it's very possible that I could have gotten the same outcome. Maybe I could have gotten a better outcome doing it some way differently. But I, there's no way for me to know that because I can't go back and copy that in time. And again, that's why we have randomized control trials, because that's where we try to pick out some of those differences. And people who say, well, I did this and I got this. Here's the problem with anecdote. And like, I'll use carnivore diet, for example. There's people say, Lane, there's all these people that say, you know, they, they did the carnivore diet and they resolved all these health problems, their autoimmune issues, blah, 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 blah. I'll say, cool, I can go find the same amount of vegans or more who say the same thing. What makes your anecdote more valuable than theirs? Now, I'm not saying that your experience is incorrect. I'm not saying that you didn't get some benefit. What I'm saying is you cannot apply that broadly to other people. You cannot do that because you started following the carnivore diet. Okay, cool. You also basically stopped eating processed foods. And it's also very hard to overeat calories on a carnivore diet. 
So guess what fixes a lot of stuff? Calorie restriction and weight loss. If you're 50, 60, 100 pounds overweight, I mean, do I think a carnivore diet is the best diet out there? No. Do I think it's optimal for human health? No. But if somebody loses 50 pounds on it, compared to what they were before, if they were overweight or obese, are they probably better off now than they were previous? Probably. So, but are they as good as it, are they good as they could have been if they include the fruits and vegetables and a more balanced diet and lost the 50 pounds through that? Probably not. And so I think those are the nuances that people are missing when it comes to this discussion. And again, anecdote is so powerful. I mean, just to think about it for like in finance, right? Like somebody, um, how many times do you do a rigorous, you know, analysis of like, hey, who's the best financial advisor in my area? No, you go to your buddy who made a lot of money in investing. Oh, hey, who did you use? Right? Like, that's what we do. Uh, and if you see somebody, you like their paint job on their house, you go, hey, who, who painted your house? Right? You don't, you don't go, like, look up who's in the Better Business Bureau or any of this kind of, because anecdote for us and word of mouth is really powerful. And, um, you know, people's personal experiences are, are very powerful. And I think a lot of that, too, is people feel very disconnected from scientific research. Um which is one of the things I really try to do is I really try to make it not an ivory tower. That's why I started my research review. Uh, every month we like basically review like five different popular studies and break them down in a way that's like easy for people to understand. Because I think that's so important for people to have that connection to what's actually going on. Because otherwise, they're just going to consume stuff over social media or what's in the news. And I can tell you... I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show. And NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners. Because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there. Juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. 
Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Today's show is brought to you by 1Password. Now listen, we all have that one friend who's constantly forgetting passwords and needing help to get into their accounts. I have a solution. It's called 1Password. 1Password is the award-winning password manager trusted by millions of users and companies like IBM and Slack to keep logins, credit cards, and other private info safe in an encrypted vault that only you can access. No more sticky notes with passwords or using the same password everywhere. I've been using 1Password for a year now, and I can't recommend it enough. It saves me time from having to reset passwords and gives me peace of mind knowing my info is secure. With convenient features like automatic password generation and login autofill, 1Password takes the hassle out of passwords. You can use it on all your devices, iOS, Android, Mac, PC, everything syncs seamlessly. And with top-notch security audits and encryption, your data stays private. So do yourself a favor and check out 1Password today. Go to onepasswordcom slash Clary and get a two-week free trial. Let 1Password remember all of your logins for you so you can remember what really matters. That's onepasswordcom slash Clary for two weeks free. In my experience, and I've been doing this 20 years, 99 times out of 100, the headline in the news does not reflect the actual results of the study. This goes down, this, this, this is about everything from seed oils, we're gonna talk about some of that. Uh, I think meat being carcinogenic, uh, sugar, all these artificial sweeteners, all these different things that you see in the news all the time. So. Let's talk about some of these sort of more popular topical items, because I think this is sort of top of mind for everybody. I think it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting comment that these studies don't translate into headlines. So what happens? What happens when you see in the news meat is carcinogenic or seed oils are bad for you or artificial sweeteners are bad for you? Or that's a, you know, super, super basic headline. And then all of a sudden everyone's parents are stressed out or everybody's trying to throw out the Splenda from their house or everything like that, right? What what happened here? What happened in the study? How did it get mis- misinterpreted, misrepresented? So keep in mind, first thing is that negative news sells way better than positive news. So for example, there's a, a company I work with, they're called Consensus. They're, a, um, they're a, an AI powered um, research uh, crawling tool, basically. So you can go to Consensus and you can type in, uh, does creatine build muscle? And it will not only like pull up uh, all the relevant research studies, it will actually basically answer your question based on the consensus of the data in terms of yes, possibly no, right? So, and it will show, hey, 80% of studies show this, 10% show this, 10% show this, right? So they break down like what the actual distribution of the answers are. And then you can further like refine it based on like, okay, I just want the human trials or I just want uh, randomized control trials. And when you go and you look at like, uh, for example, does aspartame cause cancer? Um, Actually, I think I had this just pulled up. Let me just see if I can find it. Let me just pull it up. Because these are these are the things that you know I I I hear all of these I hear all of these you know and these these sort of these tropes and I try and do my own research as well because I'm I am somebody who would try and go into a PubMed study and see where this came from 
But even even for somebody that does the effort and does the cognitive work and goes in and tries to understand, you can still even find these PubMed studies that support one way or the other, and it gets very difficult to understand what's what's correct and what because you don't you're not I'm not a researcher I'm not a scientist you know there's how many how many pages in this study and you're just looking at the abstract and you're hoping that the study was done right and you're looking at the end results, but it gets very confusing. So I can only imagine if somebody does not go to the, even that level how confusing some of these things could be. Oh yeah. So basically if I pull it up, so it's like, okay, <laughs> so here's the results. If I, if I use the, um, the phrasing, does consuming aspartame increase the risk of cancer? Um, 14% say yes. 14% say possibly 72% say no. Now, if you are the news What's going to get you more clicks? Aspartame not found to be associated with cancer in this cohort. Or aspartame increases risk of whatever tumor by 15%, right? Well, of course, it's the the negative headline. And that gets down to a more um, important aspect of cherry picking. So you can always, it doesn't matter what, what your belief is. You can always find a study to support whatever your belief is, okay? Now, a lot of them are like, people will use like in vitro studies, which is basically the Petri dish or animal studies. <laughs> but just to show how powerful cherry picking can be, I pulled up a, um, I actually did this because I, I did a, a big long debunk of Paul Saladino's appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast a few years ago. Uh, so Paul is a carnivore diet advocate. Um, and, uh, basically says that fiber is useless, fruits or vegetables are bad for you and all kinds of crazy stuff. And um, just to give you an idea of how much it, how much effort it takes to debunk nonsense versus saying it, his podcast is like just over three hours long, probably took me 50 hours to do this breakdown. It was uh, 48 pages in a Google Doc and it had 283 citations. Um, it took me 10 hours just to listen to it because every time there was a claim, I had to write it down and then go back and address it, right? And I had to cite the whole thing. But there were several times where he would cite a study and I would like scream. I'm like, that's one study and all the other studies showed something else, right? Like you're picking one study. So just to make the point in that breakdown, I pulled up a, a research meta-analysis of the risk of smoking on adenocarcinoma, right? So if you look at the overall effect I believe the effect of smoking on adenocarcinoma, when you compile all these studies, it's like a seven times risk increase, like a 700% increase in the relative risk of cancer. That's massive, right? And when you look at what they call a forest plot, and a forest plot is basically there's a center line, which basically means no effect. And then to one side, there's either a positive or to the other side, there's either a negative effect. And depending on how far it is to one side for each individual study, it shows you how powerful the effect was. Hopefully that makes sense. Well, if you look at the center line, virtually every study is like far to the right, showing increased risk of cancer. But there were two studies that were just a little bit left of that line. So if I wanted to make the argument that smoking did not increase the risk of adenocarcinoma, and oh, by the way, might actually be protective, um, I could just highlight these two studies and completely omit the other 48 studies. And so that's why it's so important to, I mean, frankly, this is so hard for the 
the average person because they don't have a research background. They don't know like what to give more weight to, which is why I like again I love that tool consensus.app because they that you could ask the question and it will kind of show you pretty quickly and then there's search filters as well. Um because it's so hard for the average person to like hear this stuff and, and you know, and really feel like, oh, and then if it fits their bias, that's another thing. So let's say somebody doesn't really like eating vegetables and here comes this expert with a, a medical degree. Um, by the way, he's, Paul's a psychiatrist. Um, but here comes this expert with a medical degree who says, oh no, you know, vegetables actually not good for you. Uh, because vegetables contain phytates, which uh, can, and oxalates, which increase your risk of ox, uh, oxalate stones, and can also bind to nutrients and reduce your nutrient absorption. Also, there's sulforaphane in broccoli. And look at this study showing when they gave sulforaphane, it increased the risk of cancer. You know, and it's like so you can. And then when you look at the sulforaphane study, it was a crazy high dose, and it was in rats. And you can find more studies showing that sulforaphane may actually have an inhibitory effect on cancer. But you can always find a specific compound in any food, man-made or natural, that if you fed it in a high enough dose would cause problems. I mean, you give people enough water, it'll kill them, okay? So, unfortunately, people don't know how to unpack this stuff. And again, you know, I'll, I'll kind of go to, yeah, but... What actually happens with people who eat lots of fruits and vegetables? Because based on what you're saying, they should die earlier. Oh, oh, in studies where they look at people who eat lots of fruits and vegetables, they live significantly longer. So how does that, like this is the direct question we're concerned about. So how do you reconcile your claim with the actual human outcome data? And so this is what's so hard for people to unpack. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, the Success Story Podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. So if you like this show, you'll love some of the other shows in their network. One of my personal favorites is the Hustle Daily Show. It brings you a healthy dose of irreverent, offbeat, and informative takes on business and tech news, and you guessed it, every single day. Some of their recent episodes that were my personal favorites, how AI is making fake IDs, how to meet your favorite CEO for a few thousand dollars, and also how TikTok is turning into an online mall and starting to replace QVC. If you love business, if you want to get it daily, listen to the Hustle Daily Show wherever you get your podcast. Well, it seems like it. So it, it's sort of unfortunate that people are um, they're not fair with their representation of facts. Like an individual that goes that deep and does a three-hour podcast on a particular subject, you would think that they would look at all the data, right? But that's I mean, this is probably why you're so fun at parties because you're bringing you're bringing up you're bringing up all the shit that they don't want to address, and and you know that some of these people found these studies as well, but it doesn't fit the narrative. And then, like, let's say you're somebody who doesn't like eating vegetables, and you hear this guy saying, "Oh, vegetables are bad for you," it's not going to take that much evidence to convince you that, oh yeah, vegetables are are not good for me. I'm not going to eat vegetables. You're not looking it up, right? Exactly. I mean, same thing with like you know, uh, it's funny like I um. Every once in a while, I'll smoke a cigar. And, I, you know, I'll be like, I've, I've been on social media and, like, had a cigar in a picture or whatever. And people will be like, so does that mean smoking isn't bad for you? And I'm like, no, it's bad for you. I, I, I just understand it's bad for me. And I am valuing the experience over the fact that, you know, this may, this one cigar, I doubt will, will increase my risk that much. If I did it very regularly, it might. 
Um, but I acknowledge it is definitely not the best thing I can do for myself. But I'm also not over here trying to convince myself that, you know, smoking actually isn't that bad. And, you know, actually it's good for you, you know, because uh, it lowers my stress. It lowers my stress and lower stress is associated with longer longevity. See, I can make any argument I want, you know, based on whatever it is I want. Uh, and so it's really important to just look at the human direct data with regards to that stuff. I mean, another great example is um, uh, the the artificial sweeteners. You know, like people are so scared of artificial sweeteners. And the research, like I said, 71% of the studies show that it doesn't cause cancer. But what gets focused on is the 14% that say it does. Um, when you're looking at, so if you look at all the different types of diets, just sort of one last question on this, because you did mention longevity. Are there any, is it just a balanced diet that has the best possible outcome for human longevity across all the different studies? Okay, so I'll, I kind of, um, I have six pillars for longevity, okay? Um, don't eat too much. Mm, meaning control your calories, don't become obese, okay? Now, there are people who say, you gotta fast because autophagy. Um, there's, there's no evidence that fasting is superior for producing the desirable effects compared to just normal calorie restriction. Now, there are monkeys, there's actually more studies showing that uh, caloric restriction is better for longevity. Now, we, you can't really do that study in humans because you have to track them their entire lives and control their calories. But we do have in primates, so in rhesus monkeys, uh, they showed that a 30% reduction uh, in calories, a 30%, well, okay, so here's where it's going to get tricky. They showed that a 30% calorie restriction was sufficient to prolong lifespan significantly. I can't remember what it was. I think it was like something like a, like a year or two. What's the baseline when you say calorie restriction? So is it like, it's a 2,000-calorie uh, diet. Are you supposed to be hitting... So, so this is the, this is the question, Scott. So this is why it's important. So I did a lot of animal research and I know how these studies are done. They didn't find out what the maintenance calorie level of these animals were and then feed them 30% less. What they do in caloric restriction studies is they'll, they just have animals eating ad libitum. So however much they want, they track how much they eat and then they restrict it by, by a certain percentage and they call that calorie restriction. Um, so <laughs> interestingly, animals overeat in captivity, right? So when you look at the research data, when they cut these animals calories, yes, they lost weight initially, but it plateaued very quickly and then they just maintained it. Okay. So if it was true calorie restriction, they would lose it, lose weight for a really long period of time. And they'd actually have to adjust it. What, it, what, what you're really seeing, I think, is they're simply stopping these animals from becoming obese, from gaining excess body fat. I think that's really what that data says. I don't think you have to eat low calories your entire life. I think you just need to stop yourself from becoming obese, like have a normal uh, level of body fat. And I will say too lean also has uh, increased risk of mortality. So you don't want to go too lean either. Um but a normal level of body fat, you know, for men, 10 to 15%, for women, 20, 25%, all those are, are totally fine. Um, so that's number one, don't eat too much. Exercise vigorously and frequently. Move your body. That's you. If you look at any study of activity, 
like even with steps, there is a huge drop off in mortality going from 2000 steps a day to 8,000 steps a day. I mean, it's a massive difference. Um, and then it's the benefit slows down, but it never caps out. Like even up to like 24,000 steps a day, you're still getting incrementally like smaller and smaller benefits, but there's still a benefit. Now, do I think steps are magic? No. They showed the same thing with push-ups. Men who could do like over a certain amount of push-ups had lower risk of mortality. These are just more active people. This is, this is what this data is showing. So number two is exercise. Number three, uh, don't smoke or limit smoking, right? Um, you know, there's no benefit to smoking other than, like I said, for my cigar, like it helps me relax every once in a while. But this is something I might do once a month. You know, do like for the most part, smoke as little as possible. Um, and even like with the vaping, uh, the vaping isn't as bad as regular smoking, but it's still not good. Um, it still increases risk of lung cancer and cardiovascular disease because it's the smoke itself that appears to be negative. It's not the nicotine. It may not even be the tobacco. It may just be the, the, the smoke you inhale itself. Um, number four would be uh, get enough sleep. Okay. So most people, again, this isn't something sexy. They don't do this, right? Um, number five, actually, I'm going to make this seven pillars now that I'm thinking of it. Uh, number five, limit alcohol. I say limit, people get mad at me. The, I think small amounts of alcohol are not harmful. Your body has a system in place to metabolize it. Um, there are cohort studies that show a dose response of alcohol on mortality. But again, people who tend to drink also tend to have other unhealthy lifestyle behaviors. Um, if you look at the human randomized control trials, looking at like small amounts of drinks, you can't really find them of negatively affecting health markers. So in my opinion, I think, you know, a few drinks per week is probably fine. But if you can abstain, fantastic. Um, and then the next one, number six, is one I think is really underrated. Mental health and stress management. If you look at psychological stress and the risk of mortality and autoimmune disease, very, very strong association with autoimmune disease. And most people who have autoimmune diseases, there's actually a very strong cross correlation between autoimmune diseases and um, psychiatric disorders. So people who have psychiatric disorders are at increased risk of autoimmune diseases and vice versa. So I think when you're putting your body into fight or flight mode all the time, um, your body can begin to attack itself. I mean, I, I'm not an autoimmune expert. Um, this is just some stuff I've seen in the research literature. But uh, honestly, overall, we do see it in mortality. There, there, is, there does bear to be effective mortality and psychological stress. So getting cognitive behavioral therapy and learning how to manage stress, because <clears throat> I think most people... I include myself in this for a long period of time, had this idea that we could just get stress out of our lives. That is never going to happen. Especially if you're a driven person who wants to do something, you will have stress. It is part of life. Every single one of us is going to go through trauma, tragedy, horrible things are going to happen. What matters is how do you handle it? How can you perceive it? Can you feel your feelings and move on from them? Or do you get stuck in a leap? So I think like mental health is a huge component of longevity and just quality of life, obviously.
Then finally, uh, eat enough fiber, fruits, and vegetables. That's, there's very, for every 10 gram, there was a, a meta-analysis and met what they call meta-regression, where they basically like try to project based on the research data they have um, and using, uh, or using statistical modeling, like what is the, the effect of this? Is it like a U-shaped curve? Is it linear? So in most of these models, when they look at fiber intake, it is a linear effect on the risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and all-cause mortality. And they find that for every 10-gram increase in fiber, there is a relative 10% reduction in the risk of all-cause mortality, cancer, and cardiovascular disease. So fiber is like literally a longevity hack. So, so that actually is an interesting point because normally I'd look at the traditional uh, you know, government-sponsored food pyramid and say that they got most of that wrong. But I would say that that fiber component is actually something that aligns with sort of more mainstream health narratives. I think, um, you know, so people love to slam the food guide pyramid. They love it when they're going after me too. They say I'm like a government or a big food shill. And, um, you know, it's funny too. Some people will say, I'm like, dude, what do you think I did for my PhD? Because they'll We'll say, well, you didn't do your degree in a hard science. I'm like, ah, uh, my BS is in biochemistry. I took calculus one, two, and three. I took differential equations. I took, uh, two, I took physical chemistry, instrumental chemistry, analytical chemistry, organic chemistry one and two. I took advanced nutrition and metabolism. I took nutritional biochemistry. So please explain to me which one of these aren't hard sciences. Uh, do you think I just like sat and looked at a picture of the food guide pyramid for six years? So... The food guide pyramid, <clears throat> do I agree with it? Not really. Mostly from the perspective that I think um, lean sources of protein were unfairly demonized. Um, but do I agree with most? And, and I think they, they, people don't do well with nuance, unfortunately. And so what you see was at the bottom was emphasizing whole grains, starches, you know, those sorts of things. If you look at the research literature, the research literature supports the consumption of whole grains for reducing the risk of metabolic disease, cardiovascular disease. But unfortunately, people look at that and they go, oh, well, yeah, I just have a lot of spaghetti and meatballs or, or have a, a lot of, you know, um, refined carbohydrate, um, which again, there's, there's actually like very little research that suggests refined carbohydrates in isolation are bad. It's more about the fact that people who eat a lot of refined carbohydrates don't eat much fiber. Um, because if you look at studies where they equate carbohydrates and calories and either eat, have people eat refined sugar or like very little refined sugar, people lose the same amount of weight on weight loss diets and have similar improvements in their health markers. But the real problem is it's hard to eat a lot of refined people don't add, they replace when they eat. So if they're eating one thing, they stop eating another. So a great example of this is like, if sugar is so bad, why is fruit associated with so many positive health outcomes? Because fruit has a lot of sugar in it. Well, because fruit has a lot of fiber in it, and it's difficult to overeat, right? Because of the fiber content. So again, uh, I think the food guide pyramid wasn't really that bad. In the end of the day, people didn't really follow it. That's the issue. Like, sure, people ate a lot of carbohydrates, but they also ate a lot of fats. In fact, the biggest source of added calories in the last few decades is oils, uh, not carbohydrates. In fact, if you look at the last 20 years, sugar consumption has actually dropped quite a bit. Uh, and we're still getting fatter and more unhealthy. 
So again, people took out sugar, but they replaced it with oils, you know? And so, um, I, you know, I don't like demonizing the food guide pyramid just because I think if people actually followed it, which, which it also said exercise and limit your calories, limit your sugar, limit your added oils. If people actually followed it, it would have worked, but people didn't follow it. You know, unfortunately, the messaging that they took from it was eat a lot of carbs, but then they also added fats with it. So, Okay, last thing on nutrition, then I want to speak about resistance training, physical activity. Um, on Twitter right now, you are going into it with <laughs> Tucker Goodrich on, I think it's about seed oils. What, where did that come from? Because I've heard, oh my goodness, I've heard the most ridiculous things about seed oils. The last thing that I heard about seed oils, and I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I'm just telling you anecdotally what I heard was some guy told me that if, that if you, you don't, don't eat, eat seed, seed oils, oils, you won't, you won't sunburn, sunburn anymore. anymore. And I was like, listen, I can't. <laughs> I can't, I can't get this, this anymore. anymore. Yeah, so this is what we call mental gymnastics. Um, so what they're doing, so seed oils essentially are like canola oil, um, you know, mostly polyunsaturated fats, which is what's been emphasized uh, in the food guide pyramid and in government recommendations. So here's my devil's advocate argument. Seed oils are not inoc innocuous insofar as they are the largest source of added calories in the last few decades and have contributed to the obesity crisis uh, because of that. But, and if you look at cohort studies where people consume more oil, uh, by default more calories, there are negative health outcomes. And they're also looking at research studies looking at like omega-6 to omega-3 ratios and showing that you know, there's higher incidence of disease and people who eat more omega-6 versus omega-3s. But what do the human randomized control trials say? Where they don't just add it, they replace it. Meaning, if we substitute in polyunsaturated fats in place of saturated fat, based on these folks... Hey guys, I don't know if you know this, but I love biohacking. I love testing out new foods, new supplements to feel my best, look my best, perform my best. That's why I'm so excited that we partnered up with Neurohacker. They're sponsoring today's podcast. So this is something new, Senolytics. These are cutting edge ingredients that are making waves in the world of healthy aging. If you're looking to optimize your energy, feel your best no matter what your age, you definitely have to start researching this. This is why I'm super excited to be talking about Qualia Senolytics. See, as we get older, these things called senescent cells build up. They're basically old, worn out cells that hang around and mess things up. They cause aches, slow recovery, a general blah feeling. Think of them as zombie cells. Qualia Senolytic gives your body a kickstart to clear those out. Think of it like a deep cleaning for your body on the cellular level, making way for your good cells to thrive. Honestly, before I tried this, I was a bit skeptical, but guys, the difference blew me away. Within a few months, Energy levels are through the roof. I felt sharper. My workouts felt better. This middle-aged sluggishness, it's gone. And you can take quality, this middle-aged sluggishness, mostly gone. So if you're ready to fight those aging effects at the source, head over to neurohacker.com slash success pod. That's neurohacker.com slash success pod for up to $100 off and use the code success pod for an extra 15% off your order. And just a quick disclaimer, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food or Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And this review 
represents my personal experience and opinions and is not a guaranteed promise or reflection of anyone else's results. I was given free product in exchange for this endorsement. Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm gonna paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home, your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything and your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts, this happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock, fingerprint, tap, I'm inside. And honestly, I also feel way safer. It's got this awesome built-in camera. So whether it's a package delivery or late night Uber order, I see exactly who's there right from my phone. There are no more mystery knocks. And the best part, this thing was such a breeze to set up. There's no wires, there's no drilling. Uh, there's also no monthly subscription fees. So if you are done fumbling with your keys, because I definitely am, search for Eufy Video Lock or head over to eufyofficial.com slash video lock your front door, your sanity. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Claims we should see worsening health outcomes for cardiovascular disease, for cancer, for inflammation, for metabolic health. Nobody yet, nobody, I've challenged them, challenged Tucker, no one has been able to show me one randomized control trial where these markers got worse when saturated fat was replaced with polyunsaturated fats. So, and so it's either neutral and in many studies it has a positive effect. So if you look at, say, like liver fat, there was a study where they replaced, um, uh, they either had people consume polyunsaturated fats or saturated fats. Saturated fat, they, or sorry, they overfed them. So this is actually an overfeeding study. Saturated fat increased liver fat 78% more than polyunsaturated fats. Um, if you look at the, the effects on insulin sensitivity, there's either a neutral or positive effect. If you look at the effects on blood lipids, there's a neutral or positive effect. There's actually a pretty big positive effect when it comes to LDL cholesterol. Um, if you look at the risk of cardiovascular disease, of cancer, the same things. So where are all these negative effects coming? Inflammation. These guys, they're whole, one of their big central core themes is these things, because they're unsaturated, because the, the so in polyunsaturated fats, you have multiple double bonds. These double bonds can become oxidized and that oxidation, they claim, is going to cause inflammation. Okay, cool. 
So we have these things called human randomized control trials where we can feed people this stuff and see if it increases inflammation. So what do we see when we feed polyunsaturated fats in place of saturated fat and look at inflammatory markers? We either see a neutral or positive effect. Most studies are mo mostly neutral, but there are a few that show positives. Now, Paul Saladino came back on Twitter and said something like, um, well, look at this study where they fed uh, alpha-linolenic acid and saw um, an increase in lipid peroxidation. Great. So what, what, so let's, okay, so that's a mechanism, all right? So that is one thing. I hold open, I hold open the idea that nutrients can have both positive and negative effects in multiple different pathways. And so the question becomes, is the overall effect positive or negative? That is the question we should ask. Because what Paul is doing by pointing out a mechanism, whereas I'm pointing out the actual human outcome data, hey, look, cardiovascular disease, cancer, metabolic health. That's like saying, hey, look at this mutual fund. And let's say the mutual fund has 150 funds in it. Hey, you don't want to invest in this mutual fund. It's got these two funds in it, and they went down by 50% this year. Without with omitting the fact that the overall fund is up by 30%. What do I care more about? That the overall mutual fund is up 30% or that there's two stocks in it that are down by... I don't give a damn about those two stocks. I care about the performance of the overall mutual fund. And that is the difference between looking at human outcome measurements versus these, um, these mechanisms these guys love to focus on. And... Um, unfortunately, again, people don't know the difference between the two. They just go, oh, well, this guy started the study and this guy started the study. And I'm like, yeah, but that study doesn't actually answer the question that we're asking. So at the end of the day, they're doing just a, a more educated version of what the news is doing already. Pretty much. It's, it's, it's cherry picking. It's, um, and then it's like, so there's always all these guys, whether it's plant-based zealots, intermittent fasting zealots, seed oil zealots, they all follow the same arc which is look at these studies. And then I say, okay, well, here's these studies that actually measure what we're wanting to measure and they show no difference. And then they go, well, look at these anecdotes. And I'm going, well, here's these anecdotes over here from people who did the opposite thing. So what makes yours more valuable? And then invariably their last gasp effort is to completely dismiss all scientific research. So I say, look at this uh, thing that shows that uh, there was this article published in The Lancet where The Lancet claimed that like 40% of scientific research was either doctored or fabricated, right? And so they'll say, they'll say, well, see, we can't trust any scientific research. I'm like, no, you can't trust any one research study. But what you can trust is the consensus of scientific data because replication is the mother of all science. Because when somebody produces an outcome in a lab, other labs look at that and go, mm, I don't believe that. And so they try to replicate it. Because one, if they can replicate it, they want to know if they're wrong. And sure, maybe there's even multiple labs that did stuff, but it doesn't, you, it's not going to survive the rigor of scientific experimentation over time. And when people say this stuff, you'll have people say, well, you know, they've had a cure for cancer and they've been hiding it. My response is always, so basically what you're saying is all scientists are pieces of shit, is what you're saying. They go, what do you mean? I'm like, you don't think that there's a scientist involved in this cover-up who has a family member that died of cancer 
You think you can just pay off everybody? Like one of uh, uh, Joseph Zundel, great, great follow on Instagram. He's a cancer biologist. He got into cancer because one of his family members died of cancer. You think there's an amount of money that you're going to give that guy? Like, like scientists work for very little to begin with, you know? Am I saying that there's no bad eggs out there? No, of course there's bad eggs out there. But that's why replication is the mother of all science. And that's why we don't just look at one research study. We look at the consensus of the data. I love that. Okay, let's talk a little bit about resistance training. Um, in your opinion, resistance training is the best thing you can do for your health. And I say, obviously, in your opinion, you have some data to back that up. So, and personal bias. I am biased in this area. And personal biases, of course. <laughs> so let's talk about resistance training versus aerobic training, uh, sprinting, jogging, whatever it is. Pick anything else. Why is resist resistance training king? Great question. So there was actually just a study published, I believe, where they looked at the risk of cardiovascular disease. They actually found it was lower in people who resistance trained versus people who just did aerobic exercise. I can't remember the exact citation, so I should go hunt that down. Um, the, the reason I like resistance training is if you're doing it hard enough, if you're going hard enough, you're going to get the benefit, some of the benefits of cardiovascular work. Like, um, you know, I have an Apple watch that tracks my heart rate and whatnot. So if I do a two-hour resistance training session, I'm doing like heavy squats and deadlifts, my average heart rate will be 130 to 140. I mean, that's right in zone two. You know what I mean? Um, and my max heart rate will sometimes hit like 190. So like you're getting some of those cardiovascular benefits from doing this, but you're also getting the benefit of more muscle mass and muscle mass is tied to longevity. Lean mass is tied to longevity as well as strength. And muscle is your uh, metabolic health organ. It is the largest organ in your body by weight and it is a metabolic sink. If you have a lot of muscle mass, quite frankly, you got a lot of places to put stuff as, as like uh, reductionist as that sounds. So if you have people who don't change anything but they just start resistance training, you'll see improvements in their blood markers because you just have more throughput to get glucose and fatty acids and all this stuff. You have more places to put it. Muscle cells are energetically greedy. So that's one. Then also you get the huge benefits on bone density. Like for bone health, there is nothing better than resistance training, period. Like if you think calcium and vitamin D are good for bone health, Resistance training absolutely slaughters them in the research data. I mean, and just as a personal anecdote, um, I've been resistance training for 25 years. The last time I had a, a bone mineral density scan done, I was basically almost off the chart of what they usually do. And I've never broken a bone in my life. I'm not saying it'll never happen. Again, that's my own personal experience. But it just has so many benefits for the stuff we care about for not just longevity, but quality of life. And bone density and muscle mass are not just huge for longevity, they're huge for quality of life as we get close to end of life. Is there, is there a correlation between uh, strength training, resistance training, and your VO2 max? I'm not sure about that. I, I would imagine it's better than just doing nothing. It's probably not better than aerobic exercise. And I, I'm not trying to poo-poo aerobic exercise. If you like doing aerobic exercise, by all means do it. Any form of activity is better than nothing. No question about it. In fact, there was even a research study that showed that just four minutes of intense exercise a day, I'm not kidding, four minutes of intense exercise per day, and it didn't have to even be consecutive. It could be broken up. Four minutes reduced the risk of cancer by 20%. Four minutes. That's what? 
four minutes. That's insane. That's a, that's wild. That's absolutely wild. Um, when you look at, when you go sort of a level deeper into the types of resistance training, you're, you're actually, interestingly enough, a power lifter and a bodybuilder. Is there a certain kind of training that is more focused on powerlifting versus bodybuilding that is maybe better for general health and longevity? Does one camp help better than the other? Yeah, I don't think there's enough research data to kind of pick that out in terms of what's better for overall health. I think if you're just doing some resistance training and being intense enough with it in terms of like, you know, getting close enough to, to muscular failure, um, yeah. then, then you're going to get a lot of benefits from it. But I don't think there's enough research out there to really pick out like which one might be better for overall health. Are they, cause are they, are they both more or less progressive overload? I've like, I've never, I've more in my life trained as a bodybuilder versus a power lifter, but it's more, it's all, it's all very much the same. Yeah, I mean, it's progressive overload, but just in different fashions, right? Like with progressive overload in bodybuilding, there's a lot of different ways to progressively overload. Um, you can add, you know, weight, you can add reps, you can add more sets, more hard sets. Um, in powerlifting, I mean, you can progressively overload the same way, but really what you're trying to get is just get stronger. Uh, but both progressive overload is important for both. It's just the way in which you progressive overload might be a little bit different. For bodybuilding, it really seems to be key to do enough hard sets very close to failure. For powerlifting, uh, proximity to failure based on the latest meta-analysis doesn't actually seem to matter much. What seems to matter is doing enough sets at a high intensity, like close to your one rep max so that you build that skill. And then um, at any given load, moving it as quickly as possible. So for example, you can apply the same force to 300 pounds that you apply to 600 pounds 300 pounds is just going to move faster. So with powerlifting, it just basically becomes very important to, at any given load, move it as quickly as possible. And I mean, is there is there a uh, for for the types of training that you do for powerlifting versus bodybuilding, um, in terms of physique look, is there one that you prefer more than the other, or is that just a a, a cause of the right diet? I mean. You'll probably gain more muscle with a, a bodybuilding type training. Uh, you can do both as well. I don't necessarily think there's a downside to doing extra accessory work, you know, for bodybuilding with a powerlifting base. Uh, it's kind of what I do. Uh, but as far as like your body composition, the amount of body fat you have, um, that is determined by you know your your energy balance and your your most of that is through diet. So, yeah, I mean, I you know, I look. I mean, I could probably diet for 16 weeks and be ready for stage, and I would look like a bodybuilder. And there's a lot of powerlifters who would fit that 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 realm. I mean, the super heavyweights might need more like a year diet, uh, but they could do it because they would have a lot of lean mass as well. But would it be optimal for bodybuilding? Probably not, um, because there's more time efficient and set efficient ways uh, to build muscle compared to how you do it in power. Understood. And then... Just one last one last point on this. Um, people that are listening to this that are are either working out or getting into working out, you know, they see so many supplements, they see all these different things that they could take. I mean, I'm sure you've tried the gamut of things that you're able to take and and try as a natural athlete. What would you recommend without going through each each thing, you know, specifically the different types of whey, different types of protein, creatine, anything off the shelf at a GNC or a vitamin shop? 
what actually moves the needle. So that's why supplement lied behind me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I kind of, I move, I put supplements into like three tiers right now. First tier is very, very clearly defined uh, creatine monohydrate, whey protein, and caffeine. Those are, those are supplements with hundreds and thousands of research uh, studies to support their efficacy. Um, there, there is no question about the benefits of those supplements for performance, for building lean tissue, for getting stronger. Then you can move into kind of tier two stuff. Uh, things I would consider in tier two are things like um, ashwagandha, uh, rhodiola rosea. Uh, those are adaptogens, which uh, appear to reduce stress. Uh, in the case of ashwagandha, they actually even build some lean mass. You've also got things like citrulline uh, on there. You've got things like um, uh, betaine, which has been shown to increase power. Uh, beta alanine would probably make the second tier. And you've got stuff like melatonin. Uh, in fact, like melatonin in a research study was actually shown to add lean mass to participants. Now that might be secondary to just them, you know, getting better sleep and recovering better. Um, but that's, so that's why like my supplements are very basic. I have whey protein powder. I have a pre-workout with, you know, caffeine, rhodiola, some other uh, cognitive enhancers, uh, a recovery product that has creatine, uh, ashwagandha, some other things in it, and then uh, a sleep supplement that the base is melatonin. There's some other um, positive supplements in there as well. But everything like I saw, I would consider at least tier two, which tier two is basically like there's not the same body of research over the same length of time done on these. And I want to see more research to kind of fully flush it out. Um, but it appears to be trending in a very, very positive direction. There's very few studies showing it does nothing. Tier three is like very new to market, very little research data. Basically, I'm unsure. You can dump almost all of them into that bucket. And then anything that don't fit in those three tiers is, you know, obviously not worth wasting your time on, um, you know, but, but tier three, I wouldn't even waste my time on either. You know, most people, most, most people, and even most people don't need tier two stuff. I mean, most people, you know, creatine and whey protein are very, very cheap. If you tolerate caffeine well, it's a great cognitive answer and a great performance answer. Uh, but those three, you know, unfortunately, you don't hear a lot about them. Uh, in terms of because they're not sexy because everybody knows that they work all the companies know that they work so all the companies sell them so they're cheap um, and that's why they also try and reinvent the wheel with like we have this uh, this is whey made from goats like I'm dead serious they have a goat whey uh, it's more anabolic than cow whey no research to support it or they're like creatine ethyl ester more anabolic than regular creatine no evidence to support that. Actually, the research science actually suggests the opposite. Um, you know, so they're, they're just people, they just try and reinvent the wheel so they can charge you more money because it's like, uh, think about uh, think about flat screen TVs. You know, when I bought my first flat screen TV in 2009, it was an LCD TV. I paid $1,000 for a 42-inch. Now I can go down and try to stick a bubble gum for a 42-inch TV. You know what I mean? Like, because everyone sells them, so they're cheap. Because the market is competitive. So people try and reinvent the wheel on this stuff, but this, the stuff that works is the stuff that's always worked. All right. I love this. Thank you. Um, one one last piece of wisdom from you. Um, think about perhaps one of the most dangerous nutrition, health, wellness, exercise myths that you've ever heard. 
What was that myth? And what would be something that people just have to be very aware of that major red flag as they sort of delve into bettering themselves, being healthier, whatever it is? Yeah, I, I don't know that there's one specific thing, but I, I guess it's more of like a, a category of stuff, which is X thing is toxic. Um, I think this messaging is toxic. Um, if you've done any research into toxicity, the dosage makes the poison. You know, like I said, you can find components of any different feet. I look in red meat, heterocyclic amines. If I look in, um, you know, plants, uh, if I look at apples, cyanide. Uh, if I look in, you know, in, like I said, any food, you can find something. Cyanocobalamin has cyanide, which is vitamin B12. Like, you can find something that sounds scary. But then, like, there was, a, there was actually a video of Gary Brocken who's gotten really famous recently talking about cyanocobalamin and how you got to be careful do you know how much vitamin b12 in a capsule in capsule form you would have to take to take enough cyanide to harm you uh it's about forty-three thousand servings of vitamin b12 so good luck with that you probably die from your stomach exploding and going septic from eating so many pills before you would ever get hot cyanide toxicity. So again, when people say stuff's toxic, you know, in food, very very rarely is it actually something you need to be concerned about. But it gets people scared to eat hardly anything. It increases, I mean, people have so much food anxiety now. I know so many people don't do, they don't attempt to do anything. They don't try to make any healthy lifestyle changes because they're like, well, you know, I can't do the carnivore diet because meat's bad for me. I can't do vegan diet because plants are bad for me. I can't do, you know, ketogenic diet because of this. I can't eat this because and they go, oh, well, I'm just not going to do anything. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because everything's going to kill me. So I might as well eat whatever I want. Um, that is way more damaging than like any toxic component of food. And then the last thing I just want to ask you, you know, at this point in your career, um, both for the industry and for yourself, you've had an incredible career as a, as a bodybuilder, power lifter, and now, you know, sort of an advocate for the truth and in, in nutrition and health and wellness. Um, what is, what does success in your career mean to you right now? And for yourself? Well, you're going to ask me a hard question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think I, I don't think I ever set out to be really well known. Um, I kind of just set out to put out stuff that was healthy. I just I just wanted to like simplify things for people. I think I was speaking to the 18-year-old version of me who was so confused about everything. And who got duped on a lot of stuff. Um so I guess success, but but as as I went through it, I realized, well, if my content becomes popular, I become popular by default. So now I mean success to me is, you know getting on some of these like you know more major podcasts which i've been lucky enough to do um you know i do want to write a book and get that on the soloist you know i do want to be you know uh maybe even like get involved with government policy in some way shape or form um you know just to just to try to help in any way i can um because i would have the largest uh, beneficial or you know positive impact i can well i think for me um, I want to simplify nutrition and take the, take the scare factor out of it. Like just 
let's focus on the good stuff that you can do rather than like scaring everybody all the time because it's just not helpful messaging you know it's it doesn't really help anybody so i think you know success for me would be i'm already seeing it in that like i i'll go to these videos of these guys making crazy claims and sure enough in, in, in almost every one of them there's comments say where's your citations where's your sources you know like people are starting to ask those questions um because you can't just take people's work for you know you can't just take people so i think that one thing that I, I really respect about you is you're such a, a logic-driven, data-driven individual. I think that this industry needs it. I think that even like having a you know a, an hour-long conversation with you, it really sheds a lot of light on things that you see in the news. And I consider myself somebody that would go a level deeper and try to do the research. And it's still so confusing. So I really appreciate like how you bring this message to the world. I think it's very, very important. Um, I want people to go follow you. I think it's at BioLane on Twitter and I think on all other most social it's at BioLane. I think your website's uh biolane.com. Um and I just want to thank you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate what you're doing. And you know, I think this is a very, very much needed perspective on this entire industry that impacts people's lives in such a major way, but is so confusing and scary to your point. So I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.